Please remain standing for our epistle lesson, which is also our sermon text from Philippians chapter 4, just two verses, beginning in verse 2. I implore Iodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we consider it today, that you would give us the mind of Christ, that we might live your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Our text today, Philippians chapter 4, deals with a universal desire, the desire for community with others and interpersonal peace. Community with others, interpersonal peace. Every society, group, friends, family, every church desires to have community and peace. And so that means our text this morning also deals with a universal problem. Every society, group, friends, family, and church struggles to create and maintain unity and peace. In one way, it is simply the old problem of the one and the many. We want to have unity with those with we are in community with, whether that's our family or our friends. And yet we find as soon as we begin to move towards others that they are very different from us. And in another way, this this problem is compounded by sin ever since the fall. And so, if this is you this morning, if you are someone who desires to have community and peace with others, today's passage is for you. But how do you go about having community and interpersonal peace? How do we go about cultivating, achieving, maintaining these things that we all desire? The world attempts to create community and peace largely through measures of uniformity. There will be peace and unity as soon as everybody acts and feels and believes the way that I do or the way that my group does. As soon as we can have our policies in place, peace and prosperity will break out. It's a failed project. And now every culture, every friend group, every subculture will have similarities and affinities. That's one of the things that makes for friendships, that we have similar interests. That's no problem. But the great picture of Christian unity that we need to keep in mind, the kind of unity 
and community that we are striving for as Christians made in the image of the triune God is found in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Do you know the verse I'm talking about? The Apostle John on the island of Patmos in his vision lifts up his eyes. And what does he see? After these things I looked, he says, and behold, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. What an image of diversity. What an image of difference. Every People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, men and women, boys and girls, Incredible diversity. And what unity. They cried with one voice, salvation belongs to our God. I want to encourage you today that true community and interpersonal peace is possible to realize even with people who are very different from you and even in spite of the sin that we all have. It is possible when we are like John's vision, when we are all oriented to Christ and to the salvation that we have in common through Christ. This actually has been one of the major themes of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And as we come to this closing chapter, to chapter 4, it would be easy for us to begin reading it and see it as an unconnected string of exhortations. Be of the same mind. You look down a little further. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentleness be made known to all men. Think on these things. It just it seems like a, a string of disconnected exhortations, but that's not the case. Like other closing sections of Paul's letters, he actually is suggesting various illustrations and applications of the doctrines that he's expounded all throughout the letter up to this point. Throughout the book of Philippians, we've seen, as we've studied through, that Paul has given us a theology of peace and of unity centered on Christ and his work. And in chapter 4, helpfully, he gives us here very practical ways for us to realize that unity in our families, within our friends, within our church. Let's look at it today. The first thing that Paul exhorts us to do is to strive for like-mindedness with fellow Christians. Look at verse 2. That's what he tells the Philippians there. He says, I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Pursue like-mindedness, cultivate like-mindedness with other Christians. We see that, that phrase, to be of one mind, to be of the same mind. We have to ask ourselves, what is, what is Paul calling for? What issue is he addressing? When you see language like that of one mind, it would be easy for us to believe that he's asking for there to be perfect unanimity on every opinion, every secondary matter. But that 
single Greek word that we have the phrase, translate the phrase of one mind, is not a plea for perfect unanimity in every matter. Although, if we do what Paul is asking us to do when he says to be of one mind, it will give us the ground that we need to work towards common opinions on secondary matters. So what is he asking for? He's not, he's not calling for indifference on central doctrinal issues either. It's not as if he's saying, Yodius, Syntyche, regardless of whatever is coming between you, doctrinally, bury the hatchet. Doctrine divides. Doctrine doesn't matter. Just love one another and everything will be all right. We know that can't be what Paul is exhorting them to because we just got done studying through Philippians chapter 3 where he warns them about the Judaizers and the heresy that they were promoting. You'll remember he called them enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, to beware of them, to separate from them. After all, this is the same Paul who wrote Galatians 1 where he made a distinction between those who were faithful to the gospel and central issues and those who were not. He said, if anyone preaches a gospel other than the one that you received from us, let that person be accursed. When fundamental gospel interests are at stake, Paul is willing to divide. But that's not what's going on in Philippians chapter 4. Yodian and Syntyche are not enemies of the cross, like he says in chapter 3, verse 18. But Paul regards these women and still regards them as fellow workers in the gospel. Their end is not destruction. Instead, their names, he says, are written in the book of life. This disagreement is not over a central doctrine. Finally, neither is it high-handed or unrepentant sin. We know that because... In 1 Corinthians, when he wrote to the Corinthians, uh, Paul told them to put out of their church a man who was living in high-handed and unrepentant sexual sin. Of course, when we sin against one another in obvious ways, we ought to seek and extend forgiveness freely. We ought to restore such one, this same apostle says, in a spirit of gentleness, looking to ourselves. But in that case, the issue, what is causing the conflict between us, is the obvious sin. In the case of Yodian Syntyche, no issue is named. And so the sin is over the issue. Sometimes the issue is the sin itself, and sometimes the sin is over the issue. In other words, what Paul is dealing with in this chapter is that low grade conflict that's inherent with being in community with other people, whether that's with friends or with church or in our families. But just because we characterized it as low-grade conflict doesn't mean that it's unimportant. We all know from experience that issues that begin small have a propensity to grow if left unchecked. Book of Hebrews cautions us saying, Be careful lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. 
Yodia and Syntyche's disagreement had gone on long enough and had grown large enough that news of it had reached Paul hundreds of miles away in Rome. So what does he do? He exhorts them to be of one mind. The word that Paul uses that we have here as one mind is used throughout the book of Philippians. It's translated many different ways. But what this word does mean is a kind of mental attitude that adopts the same direction as other other believers, the same fundamental aim, the same orientation, and the same priorities. Paul, in other words, is urging them to have the right attitude towards one another. It's not just the contents of our thoughts, but a heart attitude, having a warm affection for those around you and a willingness to serve one another. It's the same call that he gives to the Ephesian Christians in in, uh, the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4 where he says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I want you to notice that in that paragraph, that is the kind of attitude that allows people to work on matters of secondary doctrinal importance, opinion, personality. Just a few verses later in that same paragraph, Paul says, that we are to keep this attitude till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's a parallel passage. So you see in the the Ephesians letter, Paul lists out two kinds of unity. One is kept, the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, the warm affection, the willingness to serve others, the willingness to grant and to hear other viewpoints. The second unity in the very same paragraph is arrived at until we all arrive at the unity of the faith, mature manhood, completion. This is the attitude that Paul is calling on for the Philippians to to give towards one another. It's the attitude that we are to have towards one another as we work for the second kind of unity. So we don't know exactly what the issue between Iodia and Syntyche was. But in a way, that means we know exactly what the issue between Iodia and Syntyche was. Because it's something that we all deal with personally in our relationships with other people. Paul alluded to it in chapter 2. You can see that in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He tells the Philippians, Fulfill my joy... By being of one mind, very same word, by being of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but the interests of others. What's the issue that Yodia and Syntyche are dealing with? Selfishness, insisting on our own way unwillingness to serve others. One of the great truths in Philippians 2 and Philippians 4 is that sin 
alienates. Sin alienates, especially if it involves grasping after our own prerogatives. This is a theme that begins in the very beginning of the Bible and runs all throughout, and here we see it again. Think back to the Garden of Eden and our first two parents. What did Adam and Eve do in the garden but grasp after their own prerogatives, to grasp after the right, to grasp after the forbidden fruit that God, the one thing that God had withheld from them, to be selfish, to be ambitious. You will be like God. Results in alienation. When God comes into the garden, Adam hides himself. God calls out to him, where are you? He says, I was naked and I hid myself. It's an alienation from God. It also involves alienation from one another. What do Adam and Eve do after that first grasping sin? They sew fig leaves together to hide, to separate from one another as well. It's the same for any time that we act in selfish ambition and conceit, as Paul might say. The issue isn't named, but it tells you that the original issue was small enough that the attitude here, the selfish ambition and conceit, was the bigger issue. Some of you are probably familiar with Pastor Doug Wilson's pithy proverb where he says, there is a deeper right than being right. In interpersonal dealings, there is often a deeper right than being right. I love that proverb. I remind myself of that proverb all the time. Sometimes the other person's sin is so small that to have a bad attitude about it is a much bigger deal. You know this. You've, you've experienced this. When the kids are unthinking and they track in mud into the house right after you've cleaned it, that's, that's not a good thing to be um, irresponsible, to be unfeeling towards other people, but if, if you blow up at the kids or if you stew over that all day, that's a much bigger deal than the carelessness on the part of the kids. Sometimes our attitude about other sins is a bigger deal than the sin itself. And sometimes there are plenty of times when your brother or sister in Christ will rub you the wrong way and there's no sin involved whatsoever. This is just being different from other people. It's simply a matter of a difference of opinion or of culture, of a a preference. This idea was really driven home to me when we lived in Atlanta and a good portion of our church was from various countries in Africa. Okay, one, one time Rachel and I got the flu really bad in Atlanta and we were laid up hard in the house and our African church members sweet people came over with some food for us and they sat with us in our house for like three days they didn't go anywhere (laughs) and the mindset was they you know I explained to them like wow you know this is great guys thanks for taking all this time to be with us and bringing us food and and after after the second day you go we're good we're good. You guys can go on home. And the look on their face was shocked. And the mindset was, you're sick. 
why on earth would you want to be alone? And we're, we're thinking, we're sick, just leave us alone <laughs> so we can sleep. Sometimes your brothers and sisters in Christ are from a different place. They grew up in a different culture. They have different opinions. And there's no sin involved. You know this if you're married. If you're married, you're already doing cross-cultural ministry. All right, men and women just approach and think about things very differently. Just extend that principle out to the rest of the body of Christ. He exhorts us to be of the same mind. Being of the same mind is difficult work. In fact, in the flesh, it's impossible. In the flesh, doing what Paul exhorts us here is impossible. Which is why, going back to the beginning, it's a universal problem. It's why every society, every family, every church, every group of friends struggles to maintain unity. We're afraid of giving up a point because we think that if we do, we're going to get walked on or that it's a sign of weakness. And besides this, we, we have this simple, straight-up selfishness in our flesh post-fall to deal with. We really don't believe what the Lord said, that it's more blessed to give than receive. So what do we do? We have to do this. This is why Paul, principle number two, lifts our eyes to spiritual realities that are beyond our personal conflicts. He lifts our eyes to spiritual realities far beyond our personal conflicts. That's why he entreats them to be of the same mind in the Lord. Look again at verse 2. I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. We cultivate like-minded unity with our brothers and sisters, which is in turn grounded on the unity that we already have in Christ. The German pastor, theologian, and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic work on Christian unity, Life Together, says this, quote, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is ever more or less than this. In Christ, we have been chosen from eternity, accepted in time, and united for eternity. So if we take Paul's whole phrase here, be of one mind in the Lord. In Greek, you could very literally render it, think in the Lord, or think according to the Lord. In other words, the power that we need in order to do what Paul has exhorted us to do is to think according to the truth of our reconciliation in Christ with God and with one another. We saw that grasping and clutching at our own prerogatives brings alienation between God and man. But the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, God has come close. God has bridged that distance that we created from him in the garden. This was the good news that Paul preached to the Philippians in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verses 6 and following. He says, Christ, who, did not, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, 
but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In the incarnation, the great rift between God and man is bridged, literally in the person of Christ. In the person of Christ, God and man are one. This is, this is the theology of the incarnation for unity that Paul's putting forward here. Jesus was in the form of God, and in his humility, he took on our humanity. When there was a rift, Jesus took on our humanity and came, and Paul told us what he did when he got here. He took the form of a servant, humbled himself, and died the death on the cross that you and I deserved. The sin that we committed that caused that rift between God and man, Jesus Christ bridged in his humanity and paid for in his death and resurrection on the cross. You have, as we said, peace with God. This is true, not just for the Philippians, this is true for you. Jesus Christ, the sins that we confessed earlier, Jesus Christ came and bridged that gap. He died on the cross for those very sins. This is true for you. You have peace with God. But notice that it's because of Christ's humility and his willingness to give up his position that this is possible. In the rift between God and man, it was the one who hadn't sinned who took the initiative to bridge the gap. But God, in the gospel, actually achieves even greater unity than that, and that Jesus Christ, after he was raised from the dead, ascended and poured the Spirit out on the church. God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of you. Not only has God bridged the gap between you and him with sin, but he's bridged the gap between you and him by putting the very Spirit of Christ to live in you. God is... God and man are one in the person of Jesus Christ, but God and man are also one in every single one of us in whom the Spirit of God dwells, which is every single person in this room who has faith in Christ. When he says, think according to the Lord, this is what Paul means. And when he says, think according to the Lord, we also need to think in line with the reconciliation that we possess with one another through Christ. In, in the book of Colossians, he tells the Colossian Christians, you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, a restored image, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. What's the application, Paul? Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. What's the application, Paul? Remember this, he says. In Christ, we are united with God, but in Christ... As you look around the room, you are united with every other single believer in Christ. Christian unity, in other words, is ours in principle. 
And so we do well when we repent and live toward that end. That's what he exhorts them to do. I implore Iodia, I implore Syntyche to have one mind, not just to do it, but in the Lord. Remember the ground of your unity. Continuing in his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer says, self-justification and judging others go together just as justification by grace and serving others go together. End quote. Makes you think that Bonhoeffer must have been meditating on these verses as he wrote his book. So we are to think according to the Lord, our reconciliation with God and man. But thinking according to the Lord also means to think according to the truth of Scripture. We're not left wondering what the mind of the Lord. All of us Christians have been given insight into the mind of the Lord. Christ has shown us his will and purposes, not only in his incarnation, but also in the revelation that he's provided us in apostolic teaching and example. Paul's life had set the Philippians an example. We saw that in 317 last time, but it's also going to come up again in chapter 4, verse 9, where he says, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these practice, and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, when two Christians disagree on anything, they must both seek to submit their thinking and their feeling to the teaching of Scripture. This is the litmus test for our real attitude. This challenge immediately reveals whether a disagreement is due to self-centeredness or pride. Do we insist on our own way, or can we come together with other Christians and say, what is the Lord's way? Can we come together with other Christians over the revelation of Jesus Christ that God has given us in the Scriptures and say, what has our Lord said about this issue. And that's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing to submit your thoughts, your feelings, your opinions with another Christian to Scripture. Because you might be wrong, or you might be partially wrong, or you might need to change your opinion. But we have to remember there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the attitude that allows us to pursue unity on secondary issues, on opinions with one another. And I'd go so far as to say, if you haven't changed your mind or your position on a secondary doctrinal matter as you have gone through your Christian life or something with philosophy of ministry or Christian practice, then you are probably not thinking according to the Lord in this way. As a fallen human being with sometimes selfish interests and incomplete knowledge, none of us has perfect knowledge or perfect understanding of the Lord and his ways. So we need to be willing to submit our thoughts, our emotions, our actions to the Scripture. This is what it means to think according to the Lord. Finally, thinking according to the Lord means that we have our priorities of thought and emotional life tied up in the glory of Christ and the good of his people. That's why Paul makes reference to the fact that Yodia and Syntyche had labored with him in the gospel, with Clement, it says, and the rest of my fellow workers. At one point, 
these two women really had focused on the advancement of Christ's kingdom far more than they focused on their own selfish proclivities. And Paul alludes to that there and urges them to return to it. Thinking according to the Lord means shifting our priorities away from ourselves and towards the mission of God. If you've played any kind of team sport, you understand this idea. This is something that the coach, whatever it is, will, will tell anyone on a team. You need, to, you need to quit being selfish in the game. You need, to, you need to sacrifice for the good of the team. You need to sacrifice for the goal. We have a common goal here. We have a common goal. We're trying to win this game. As Christians, we have a common goal. Paul's alluding to it here. These women worked together for the advance of the gospel in their own lives, in the church, in the Philippian culture. We have a goal here of seeing the kingdom of God advance in Springfield, Missouri, in southwest Missouri, in our families, in our communities. And it's easy to get caught up in selfishness and pride when we forget the, one of the primary purposes of our fellowship is to advance the kingdom. All of this is done in the power of the Spirit. It's not something that we can conjure up and do ourselves, but it is a gift that God does give to his people as we pray and believe and receive it as a gift. Finally, the third principle that Paul gives us for realizing and cultivating community within our church, within our families, within our friends, is to remember that our peace and unity is a community project. Our peace and unity is a community project. It involves all of us. Paul, hundreds of miles away in Rome, wrote to the Philippian Christians saying, I implore Eodia and I, and I implore Syntyche. Paul's talking to them about unity. He's not leaving the issue unstated. He's gentle. He says, I implore He doesn't say, I command. He doesn't say, I demand that you act this way. But he's also direct. Paul knows that a harsh word stirs up strife, as Proverbs tell us. So he's gentle, but for all of that, he does mention them directly in a letter which is going to be read out loud in the church service to the whole congregation. I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to start pointing out you know, interpersonal problems between people. But Paul is willing to do that, even if he's willing to do it gently. And that actually confirms how close Paul is to these women and to this church. We've talked about this, that the Philippians are his joy, his crown, his beloved, my longed-for brethren. You don't take those kinds of risks of talking to people publicly about their sin unless you know that there are cushions of love and trust to absorb the impact of such a rebuke. So it's actually a credit to the Philippians and to Yodia and Syntyche that Paul is able to talk to them directly. They're mature enough to handle this blunt admonition. And I want to emphasize that because 
many of us tend to view Yodi and Syntyche in a negative light as they're, they're troublemakers in an, in an otherwise outstanding church. But that's not the case. These are fellow workers of the gospel, leaders in the church, mature women who can handle someone talking to them about an issue that they're having. We need to speak to one another about the need for peace. And we can do it by following Paul's example. He's gentle, but he's direct. He commends them even as he corrects them. He affirms their work in Christ even as he admonishes them to be at peace with one another. He reminds them of the truth of God's love for them and their unity in Christ even as he rebukes them publicly. When we talk to one another, we can both commend each other for the work and the grace that we see God working in people's lives while we tell them of the obvious places that there are problems. So how do you, how do you apply this? How do you work this? You follow Paul's example when the tension in the room is obvious, but perhaps the sin isn't. That's what's going on here. He doesn't call out a specific sin. When the tension in the room is obvious, but the sin is not, whether that's between you and another person or between two family members, between two church members, when the tension in the room becomes obvious, but the sin is not, go and entreat them directly, remembering Paul's pattern. And he also involves other mature believers. He says, I also urge you, true companion, verse 3, I also, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It's hard to see it in the English, but in Greek, Paul actually belabors this witness, this community project of cultivating our unity. He's, by peppering verse 3 with a series of Greek words that begin with the prefixed sin, S-Y-N, where we might, we get English words like synchronized or synergy, you know, togetherness. The leader that Paul calls upon here is in yoke with or Sizagus with Paul, pulling alongside him. The word help, silambano, you see it there again, sin means to yoke together or to hold together, to bring together, to work with someone else. Paul, Yodi and Syntyche have synetheleo, they have contended, they have worked alongside Paul with the gospel, and there are fellow workers, synergoi, with Paul. Paul's belaboring the point. We are in this together. This is a community project with, with, with. He's driving the point home that we must all be working with one another for this. Pastor Kent Hughes in his commentary on the book says, the apostle did not lay out a precise remedy for Yodi and Syntyche, but he handed it over to the church family in Philippi, giving them tender guidelines while being diplomatic and encouraging. What keeps you from talking to others when there's tension in the room? 
if you're a mature member in, my, in Christ, what keeps you from helping one another is from coupling them, from yoking them, from bringing others together in Christ. Often, what keeps us from doing this is our fear of meddling. We know that being a busybody of sticking your nose in someone else's business is a real thing and a real problem, but there's a difference between meddling and seeking to do reconciliation with other Christians based on the gospel. If the tension is not there and you are going to look for problems because you know that we're all, that we're all sinners and anytime you dig in the ground, you're going to find dirt. Anytime you can scratch the surface on someone, you're going to find sin. When there is harmony and you're going about looking for sin, you're meddling. But when you can cut the tension in a room with a knife, it's time to entreat one another and it's time to bring others in in the process to help. Further, as a believer, if you're acting wrongfully or not in one mind with another brother and sister, you shouldn't think it's none of anyone else's business. It is the church's business because you're part of the body and sin affects the whole body. Paul has no problem alerting the Philippian church to the problem and asking someone else to mediate. Why does he do that? Because he loves the church. He loves these people. You are my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown. When you are glorified on the great day, that will be my reward for all of the work that he's put in in preaching and teaching and pouring himself out. Paul loves the church. That's why he exhorts them to do this. So it's a tall order, but I want to encourage you today that interpersonal peace within your families, within your friends, within your church, within your groups, is not only possible, but in a very real way is a reality that you have in Christ. And we can work at realizing that unity in experience if we pursue like-mindedness through humility, if we endeavor to reorient ourselves towards God's mission, if we're willing to speak to others and involve others pursuing, uh, in pursuing reconciliation and in pursuing unity this is possible for you not to just to have in principle in theology but in practice in your life let's pray father we thank you that you have come near in your son jesus that you have bridged the gap that you have taken away our sin in his cross and his resurrection and you have knighted us with one another in so doing that he himself is our peace and we are one body in him Lift up our eyes, I pray, so that we see him clearly and we see one another in him clearly, that we would be of one mind and one spirit, and that we would strive together for the faith of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.